Today's sermon text is from John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Before we jump into this incredible text together, we need to just humble ourselves before the throne of the God who invites us into his presence. So let's bow our heads and pray. God, who is sufficient to speak such things as are written in these words? God, for all eternity, you have loved the Son by your Spirit, and you have sent your Son into this world to display your glory, to open eyes to see it, to give your Spirit that we may be partakers of your divine fellowship. And Jesus prays, he intercedes that we may be kept in that love. 
I pray that you would use an instrument like me, use my lips and the ears of everyone in this room to, to connect these words, that we would know more than just words on a page that make a sentence that tell us propositions, but we would know the God who spoke these truths. We would live with you and for you and continue the mission in this world to glorify your name. Would you do that in us today through the name of Jesus? Amen. Have you ever felt utterly unequipped to do a task that's just been thrust upon you? I remember when I started my first engineering job, the first day on the job, I was finishing up college, I had a little bit of class left to take, and I got my first job in this local engineering firm where we designed residential subdivisions. We would design roads and housing lots and all the sewer and water underneath the roads, and then we would follow through with the construction to make sure, to inspect, make sure that they were building it according to our designs. This is what I was trained for, and I was so excited for it, until the first day I showed up on the job, and I realized I have no clue what I'm doing. My first day, my supervisor tells me that I need to go out and inspect bituminous paving, and it dawns on me that I didn't really know what that meant. Even though I learned about that in class, I designed bituminous pavement structures, we call that roads, in normal talk, but here I am, I'm supposed to go out and watch how they do it, and measure it, and inspect it, and if they do it wrong, to correct them, and I don't know how to do that. I've never seen it done before. I've never watched it happen and, and been part of it in person. I was clueless. How am I supposed to keep the construction on the way it's designed? How am I supposed to measure it? What tools do I have? My supervisor hands me a notebook, says, here, take the keys to this company truck, drive out there, you'll figure it out. <sighs> And I didn't figure it out. I just sat in the truck all day long and watched them go by one mile per hour. Noted the temperature, said how much they did in their eight hours of work, drove back, handed in the notebook, and forgot about that project. Gives you a lot of confidence in engineers, doesn't it? My goodness. Thankfully, as far as I know, there's been no problems with that little road, but I felt so embarrassed that I was so unqualified for that work. Have you ever felt that way about a task? Or maybe some of you feel that way about being part of this church. Ha, huh, what am I? Everyone else is so much smarter and I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing. And how do you guys do it? And what tools do I have? What are we trying to accomplish? Well, you're not alone in feeling that way. The disciples, in fact, felt exactly this way as Jesus spent these last few chapters speaking truth to them. Over chapters 13 to 16, he's been giving them this extended farewell address, and he's telling them he's going to go away, and he's leaving them behind to love each other 
and stick together and walk together to this place that he's preparing for them, that he didn't really tell them where it was or what it looks like. And oh, by the way, on the, on the way, you're going to face a lot of trouble and opposition. So obviously this is making them pretty anxious, right? How are we going to figure this out? So Jesus is going to wrap up all of this instruction with this prayer. An instructive prayer about what they're aiming at and how they're going to do it. Because in the very next chapter, chapter 18, all of the things he warned about are going to happen. They're going to go into Gethsemane. Jesus will be arrested. He'll be taken to trial, convicted, condemned, executed. But now, in this prayer, he's going to make their task really clear. Jesus prays for his disciples to continue his mission to glorify God's name. Through this beautiful, extended prayer, Jesus will explain the aim of their mission, the people who are to be part of this mission, and the tools that he's giving them to accomplish it. So those three things are our outline today. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus will lay down the principle of his prayer, explaining what it is he is aiming to accomplish through his disciples. And then verses 6 through the first part of 11, he focuses on the people of his prayer. He sets up the particular mission team. Finally, in verses 11 through 19, it narrows in on the purpose of his prayer. The specific things he's asking the Father to equip his disciples to continue this mission. And hearing Jesus pray this way equips his disciples and us today with the vision of what we are aiming for and the tools with the confidence that we can get to work the way he has called us to. So we're going to go into the text deeply and see and try to gain that confidence for ourselves. Just reading one through five again with our eyes on the principle of Christ's mission. What is he really aiming for? Follow along again in verses one through five. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So John is telling us right at the beginning of the, verse 1 that these are the concluding remarks of this extended discourse in these multiple chapters. It started in chapter 13 when Jesus was washing their feet. And they're getting anxious because he told them, this is how you ought to love one another when I leave. But he's going to pray for them so that they can persevere in his absence. It's really interesting to me how he prays. Most often when we pray, as I instructed you when we started, we bow our heads and close our eyes. But Jesus opens his eyes, lifts his head, and looks up. Neither of these things is wrong, but each posture has a different purpose or meaning to it. 
We bow our head and close our eyes to signify humility and submission. God is a great king. And when we pray, we're bowing down, communicating that even though we ask for something, you, God, could do whatever you want. Not my will, but your will be done. But lifting your eyes, opening your eyes, lifting your face towards heaven communicates something else. It suggests intimacy and confidence. If your child comes to you asking for something with his head hanging low, He's not certain that you're going to respond in his favor, right? But if he looks at you with his face bright, his eyes open, he's, he's looking for you to respond with that same joyful answer, type of answer to his prayer, confident that you want to answer him. That's what Jesus is doing, lifting his head to his father, trusting the father is going to grant his request. And so the following verses, these first few verses, explain why he has such confidence to ask this boldly. This is the principle of the entire prayer, the whole ground, the reason why the Father is going to answer favorably. Glory. It's all about glory. The entire reason Jesus came to earth is for glory. He says, the hour has come, meaning this is the moment we've been working towards, planning for, for all eternity and through his whole life on earth. Now is the time to bring all of the teaching and the care and miracles to their climax. He's going to the cross to bring the Father the full glory that he deserves. That word glory can be kind of a confusing word. It simply means weightiness. Remember that story of the priest who was so large that he fell off his chair and broke his neck. The word for large or fat is glory. He was quite glorious and it killed him. But most of the time that word means more than just heavy. It means the weightiness of someone's value, their character. And so to glorify someone is to point out someone's value, to draw attention to it, to shine light on someone's character. So for all eternity, Father, Son, Spirit have been working to glorify one another. Hey, Spirit, look at the Father. Hey, Son, look at the Father. Spirit, look at the Son. They're all drawing attention to the glory of God. But now God wants to share that glory with his creation. The world didn't see it. Adam rejected it. And everyone since then has been blind. We can't see it. And so Jesus has come on a glory mission to make his name known on, throughout the earth. To help people see God's righteousness and justice, his mercy and his grace, his goodness and his love. And the Father then will in turn glorify the Son for accomplishing that work. So in verse 4, Jesus says, He's kept up his part of the deal. He's accomplished his responsibility in this great redemptive plan of glory. He's made the Father known. He, remember when he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So now it's time for the Father to return the glory. And the way that the Son is going to get that glory is through people. Redeemed people drawn into this fellowship of eternal glory. 
Jesus explains that the Father has given the Son authority over all flesh, over all of humanity. And Jesus took that authority and he went and grabbed some people. You're going to glorify the Father and you're going to glorify me. And you're going to come and worship us forever. So that they can proclaim that Jesus is glorious, just as the Father has been doing for all eternity. And he explains in verse 3 that to have eternal life then is to know God. Being a Christian isn't just about getting to go to heaven someday, meeting up with your dead relatives and, and doing some really cool, fun stuff. In heaven, you're not going to be floating around on clouds singing never ending, in never-ending choirs. Some of that's all going to be involved. That'll be awesome. But primarily, it's all about knowing God, the Father, the only true God. And Christ, his eternal son. That knowledge isn't just an intellectual assent to some Trinitarian doctrine. But this close, intimate relationship with him. This was what Israel was supposed to have, Deuteronomy 6, 5 and 6 said. Love Yahweh with all your heart and soul and strength. Everything about you. Starting right in your own heart. Write these truths on your heart. Not just on a piece of paper wrapped around your head. Get them in there so you know God. But Israel couldn't do that. But prophets like Jeremiah came along and wrote in Jeremiah 31 that one day God's going to make a new covenant with his people where they will all know God. He's going to forgive their sin, wipe them clean, write his words in their hearts so that they can live with him forever and be on his mission to glorify his name. It's a mission that's been going on since before the world began, Jesus said in verse 5. And now it's going to continue through this little ragtag group of disciples that Jesus came to save and forgive, to grant eternal relationship with God to. Quite a task he's putting on their shoulders, that they are feeling utterly unequipped to endure, endeavor upon. But we have to know that this, isn't, this mission that God has in this world is not something that he just scatters about and hands off to everyone. He's not just throwing invitations out. Who wants to be part of my party? See who comes. God's not that careless with his own glory. Isaiah told us that God says, I will not share my glory with anybody. Yet, strangely, Jesus came to share his glory with his disciples because more so, he's going to get tons more glory through these people by redeeming a people who are going to fight to take back the stolen glory from all the false substitute gods and the idols around this world. He's redeeming people to be some demon destroyers and dragon slayers and idol choppers. Let's look who they are in the next section in verses 6 through 11, the first half of 11. We see these people of Christ's prayer. Jesus continues, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. 
for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. So Jesus now explains here that he's specifically praying for the people whom the Father has given him. The people that God planned in eternity to save. It's like God the Father gave Jesus a list. You might call it a book of life. And he sent him into the world to go find these people and put them on his glory mission. When Jesus found them, he says he manifested God's name to them. Manifest means to make it visible, to shine the light on it. He shined the light on God's character before these people so they could see him. Again, Jesus glorifying the Father before them. Most specifically, Jesus is talking about these particular disciples that have been following him and enduring with him through his ministry. They received all this love and care and teaching from Jesus, which Jesus says in verse 7, has all come from the Father, from the Father through Jesus to these disciples. The Father has given these people to him everything he wanted them to have. And they have received this instruction in verse 8. And now they have come to know the Father and the Son, just like he was describing in verses 2 and 3. This entire chain of salvation from the Father's plan, executed by the Son and finished by the Spirit, done for these people. And so it's these particular people that he's going to pray for. He's praying for them, not for the world, he says in verse 9. That doesn't mean Jesus doesn't care for the world have any interest in the world, but specifically he's praying for these disciples that he's sending into this mission. He's praying for them to be equipped for this task, a task to continue Christ's glory mission in the world. It's helpful to stop here for a moment and, and ponder on the word world. What does Jesus mean by the world here? He uses the word world 18 times just in this prayer. And sometimes when he uses it, it sounds kind of like it's a good thing, that he loves the world. And then other times, he so it sounds more negative, like, don't be like the world. He speaks similarly to Nicodemus in John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And you put all these things together to try to understand what is John telling us Jesus is teaching about the world? He's not simply talking about people and all people who ever existed or will exist. Or he's not setting up a contrast between the sinful world and worldly people and heavenly redeemed people. Kevin Amundsen did some good study on this in School of Theology a few years ago and, and summarized it more like thinking, Jesus is thinking generally about the whole creation and how God designed the whole world to give him glory and people in it, yet the people fell. The world now is cursed by sin. 
The world is this fallen realm of Adam's race. But it wasn't sinful in its design. It's been corrupted by sin. But God loves the world because he made it to glorify himself. And it's not doing that. So Jesus is on a mission to reclaim the created order of the world. And by putting a new humanity in it that will glorify him in every corner of this world. And Jesus has identified this first group of people that are going to be that new humanity, that are going to continue that redemption work. So he's praying for them. And he's giving reasons why God should answer this prayer for them. Because first, they're his disciples. They're from the Father. They're your people. You chose them, he says in verses 9 and 10. They're special to you, Father. He's simply appealing to God's own affections for his own prized possession. Answer my prayer because I want what you want. I want these people to glorify you. If that's what you want, I'm confident you're going to answer that prayer. And the world thinks very poorly of God right now. But these disciples, they think very highly of him. And the mission is for glory. So Jesus is asking, keep these guys glorifying us and multiply that glory. And the other reason Jesus prays for them is because he's about to leave them. He has kept them focused on the mission. He's walked with them, loved them, taught them, known them, guarded them. And now he's asking the Father to do that for them in his absence. Help them stay faithful on the mission Help them finish the task. And it's for this final reason that Jesus now makes his specific requests in the rest of verse 11 through 19. He's getting to the practical purpose of his prayer. Let's read those one more time. Right in the middle of verse 11, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So now Jesus is beginning his specific request in his prayer. These are the things I want for these people. And he calls God Holy Father. This transcendence and imminence being brought together. All of this will be important at the end of this section, praying for his disciples, because this is what guarantees their faithfulness. God's holiness is the one thing that enables all the other things Jesus prays for us to be doing. In this prayer, Jesus makes two specific requests, and he adds some detail beneath them. So first in verse 11, he asks God to keep or guard his disciples. 
Jesus won't be around anymore to do that for them. So he asks the Father to do it in another way, which we remember from previous chapters is sending the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 17, the second request is for God to sanctify them, make them holy. It's God's holiness that's going to guard, keep their faithfulness. Let's look at these more specifically. How Jesus asked God to keep the disciples by giving them tools to accomplish this mission. There's a few things he lists off. The first one is unity in verse 11. He uses the own, God's own triune nature as an example. For all eternity, Father, Son, Spirit, we're one. And he wants his disciples to experience that kind of unity. Not just an organizational unity that says, you know, we're all in the same extended family, or we're all part of the, we're all Americans, we're all loosely connected by some organizational title. No, this is intimate relational knowledge with one another. Not just you and Jesus out there in the world, us and Jesus together. He unifies you in salvation with a family that helps you work towards this mission. You can't accomplish God's glory mission on your own. You need others. In fact, our unity, he had said before, is a primary part of displaying God's glory. They will know we are his disciples by our love for one another. It's a unique way that he displays his glory in this world. Because what other explanation is there for people like us of all kinds of backgrounds, ages, interests, sin habits and tendencies? Why would we all come together as one? There must be something that we all think is the one most important thing that we're going to rally around, right? Well, he says that in verses 11 and 12. That one thing is God's name, which represents all his goodness, all of his character, all of his nature. The one thing that the disciples value above all the other things is God's name. That word name in 11 and 12 is an important concept throughout scripture. We won't cover the whole thing, but remember when Moses was at the burning bush and he said, tell me your name. He says, I am Yahweh. Yahweh just means the one who exists. He's self-existing. And so Moses says, I'm going to go to Pharaoh and tell him, Yahweh says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is, never heard of him. I don't know Yahweh. So God makes his name known through the plagues and the exodus. And a little later, Moses is in the rock, says, I want to know you deeper. Show me your glory. Well, I can't show you the whole thing or you'll die. So hide in this rock. And he passes by and he says, I am Yahweh, Yahweh. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is God's name, his character. And Jesus has come to reveal that character in this world to these disciples. They have eternal life because they know God by name. Jesus says, I have kept them all faithful to you. Well, there is that one. But just to let you know, that was planned. He didn't fall out of my hand. The plan was to let him go. So I keep my disciples 
And I'm asking you, Father, keep them likewise. And so Jesus continues to ask, keep them, in verse 13, in his joy. To be in a relationship with God is to be near where there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. While they're on this glory mission, there's going to be temptation to lead them away from that joy. Find joy in other things. There's going to be trials that are going to make it difficult to be joyful. But it's actually through those trials that when they maintain that joy, that they show the world that God is most worthy to be trusted and praised, glorified over all things. My greatest joy is God who never leaves me. Even when everything else does. Everything else, Paul says, is rubbish, garbage, refuse compared to knowing him. And the way that they will continue to know him is by his word. So Jesus prays in verse 14, keep them in his word. It is the word that will give them joy. It is the word that will keep them faithful. Jesus told Nicodemus again in John chapter 3, you must be born from above a new nature given to you. You are born again, no longer of this world, but of a heavenly nature because the heavenly word has its power to give you new life. The world is going to think you're weird because you look like a foreigner. You are a foreigner. You're from another world. You're from heaven when you're born again. The world will hate you for it. And so Jesus now is praying for his disciples to remain in the word. Keep feeding on the word to withstand all of these pressures from the world. Because in verse 15, he says, I'm not asking that you take the disciples out of this world, but keep them in it. Keep them in the world. Let this mission continue. It's going to get hard, absolutely. Illness might overtake you. Tragedy will strike. People will turn against you. Temptation will become overwhelming. And in these things, you're going to cry out, God, take me out of here. I am done. I just want to go home. But Jesus is praying, no, leave him there. And show how powerful we are to keep him faithful through that. The greatest evidence of God's glory working in your life is that you remain faithful through the trials because you're showing his glorious power is what holds you in it. This is a glory mission, not a comfort mission. We want to show off his power to keep us. Especially, he says in verse 16, keep the disciples from the evil one. Satan, the devil. Satan knows if you are in Christ, you are on a mission for God's glory. And Satan's greatest desire is to steal God's glory. So if you're in Christ, he's coming after you. He wants you to be uncomfortable. He wants to take away your joy and keep you from the word and keep you separated from your church family. Jesus' entire prayer implies that following him while living in the world is a perilous journey. He didn't save you to live your best life now. You have a target on your back. He saved you and left you here in this world to slay dragons and to 
strengthen the weak, and to find the lost, and to prepare his way for his return. Being saved and unified with other believers and staying in the word and staying in an intimate relationship with God, these things are really hard. Satan will do everything he can to get you off of the mission. But Jesus is praying that these things would be your identity to keep you faithful and keep you on mission. And there's a secret weapon he prays for in verses 17 and 19. The secret weapon is holiness. He says, sanctify them. That means make them holy. It doesn't, holiness isn't separation from bad things, separation from the world, right? Because he just told us to be in, he wants us to be in the world. So holiness can't be removing us. If he wanted us to be holy, then he, and it meant separate us, then he would have just taken us out of here. So holiness needs to be something more than that. Holiness means to be devoted to God utterly focused on him with all your heart, soul, and strength in everything you do. Even if Satan comes after you, you won't be distracted. Even if the world gets dark, your eyes are still captivated by his glory. Holiness, dedication to God and his purposes. And we get that holiness through the word, he says, the word of truth. His word is truth. The word doesn't just point us to some other truth. It is the standard of truth. It's what we are held accountable to, but it's also the power to shape us according to that standard. If we are in his word, if this is becoming part of us and being written right in our hearts, we have the power to slay every dragon of sin and temptation and idolatry that comes our way. That's why we are here. He says in verse 18, just as the father sent the son in the world, now the son is sending his disciples in the world to keep fighting, keep tearing down idols. We're not just supposed to go hole up in, inside the castle walls trying to survive, last out a, a demonic siege on, on our city until Jesus comes back. No, we are opening the gates and we are going on the attack. We will win because we have holiness. But it's not our own holiness. It's Christ's holiness. He says in verse 19 that he has consecrated himself. I don't know why they translated it consecrated in the ESV. It's just the same word for sanctify. It's holy. Make, he has made himself the holy, perfect sacrifice that by his blood we will be made holy so that we can be successful on his glory mission. The, he prays this entire prayer with his eyes to heaven, confident that the Father is going to give the disciples success by the power of his own holy, righteous blood, which he is going in the next couple of chapters to shed on the cross. So the question for you now is, do you know him in that way? Are you on his glory mission by the power of his blood? If that's not the way you are living today, then 
The only response to this prayer, these words, is repent. Turn from this fallen world. Turn from your own sin. Turn from all your personal, individual glory pursuits. And trust in the sacrifice of Christ to put you on the best, greatest, most joyful glory mission there is. And if you've done that, now you work to, to fulfill Christ's prayer for you by continuing his mission. You get to work. You go to the job site knowing that you were made for this task. You have everything you need to accomplish it. You know what you're aiming for. You're certain your success is guaranteed, guaranteed because the father planned it from eternity past. The son shed his blood to Secure the victory. The Spirit lives in you to help you endure to the end. Prioritize in your life what Jesus prioritizes for you in this prayer. If you want to reach your family and your neighbors with the gospel, you must become what Jesus prayed for you to be. If you want to find joy in your life through all the hard things, you must wield these tools that Jesus prayed for you to have. If you want to overcome temptation to sin and despair in your heart and fear of our society falling apart, then you'll fight back with the power Jesus prayed to give you. Holiness through joyful unity with the church on his mission with the word. That's his strategy to fill the earth with his glory. So go home today and open up John 17 and make a list of all the things Jesus prays for, and make those, hang them on your wall, the uncompromising priorities of your life. Determine that your life and words will display nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Show that commitment through your weekly gathering with the body and with your community group. Change your job if you have to, to prioritize this mission. Show that you are growing in knowledge of God's name and his joy by being in his word daily. Identify the ways that God, that the world and Satan are tempting you to turn from this, this glory. Find a brother and sister to help you stand and turn and flee and fight. And if all these things still seem too difficult for you, but you want them deeply, then just follow Jesus' example in prayer. Get on your face first in humility and confess, God, these are not my priorities. Confess that his name has not been precious to you and his joy has been lacking in you. Confess that you've neglected his word and his people. And in doing so, you have failed his mission. And then lift your face in confidence and ask him, Father, will you make this who I am? Will you do these things in my life by your spirit? And he will be glad to do so. You can pray with confidence that he will do so because Jesus even today continues this prayer for you. Hebrews 4 tells us, We have a great high priest who has passed through into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast to our confession. Let us with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. He always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is in heaven right now before God's throne praying this prayer for you. 
so you will be successful on his glory mission. He guarantees the success by his holy blood, his holy spirit. When you cling to his promises and you get to work trusting, Jesus still prays for his disciples to continue his mission to glorify God's name. Let's pray. God, I ask you to take these words and make them our reality. Unify us as one body. Display your name into this city through these people. Make us full of your joy. Help us stand firm against the world and accomplish your mission. Make us holy to do these things for the glory of your name in Christ. Amen.